Hi, and welcome to a special series of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Robinson Meyer, a journalism fellow at Epic and a staff writer at The Atlantic. In this roadmap series, I'm talking with University of Chicago scholars about evidence-based actions that the U.S. can take to confront climate change. The set of policy recommendations are from Epic's new book, The U.S. Energy and Climate Roadmap, which you can check out for free online. For this episode, we're looking at the state of coal and coal communities. Meeting the Biden administration's goal of transitioning to a carbon-free power sector will mean accelerating a shift away from coal. That's already on its way, but there's a lot of coal in the system right now. About 25% of U.S. electricity actually comes from coal. And even in 2050, if no changes are made to current policies, 15% of electricity will still come from coal in the United States. Mark Templeton, the director of the University of Chicago Law School's Abrams Environmental Clinic, joins us today to talk about how how we can accelerate that transition, and how we can make sure that coal communities aren't left behind during it. Let's dig in. Why don't we start by, um, can you give us a sense of like what, what's the state of the coal industry right now? It seemed beleaguered during Obama, <laughs> during President Obama's administration, then President Trump tried to uh, help it as you know in 2021 what what's the outlook for coal especially from a federal policy perspective yes so i think immediately in 2021 right now we're actually seeing a jump uh in coal prices and um there's a real demand for energy as we're coming out of the pandemic so in terms of the immediate short term um coal is doing okay uh, financially. But that's really the true short term. In terms of the uh, medium to long term, we're really talking about the decline of coal. And I've really focused on the United States. Um, And one of the points I emphasize in the chapter is that at least according to current estimates by the U.S. Energy Information Agency, right? Coal is still going to be a part of our electricity mix, even in 2050. Now, that's all pending implementation of um, the various policy proposals um, that you uh, see out there. But we're kind of moving in a place from where coal is about 25% of our energy mix right now to about 12% in the future. So it's definitely in decline, but without significant policy change, uh, it's not slated to go away. And just like what's sustaining that last, you know, 12 or 15 or 10 percent? Like, you know, during the past decade, I think probably most listeners will be familiar with the story of of natural gas uh, and some renewables probably driving out coal at the price level, at least is my understanding. Why will that phenomenon just not continue as a straight line trend into the future? Like what's what's sustaining the the coal that we have right now? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, people have talked a lot about coal being right this baseline um, source uh, of power that can essentially run all the time. You actually see coal operating more as an uh, intermediate uh, level <laughs> of power uh, source, so kind of filling in uh, the the gaps uh, there. Um, it, it, like it almost as like a peaker or like at a seasonal yeah, level? Sort of, I, I would say kind of in between kind of the base load and the peaking, because huh. it's, it's not necessarily something that you can ramp up or ramp down uh, as easily as like the gas peaking plants. Um, uh, but to kind of 
fill in, I guess I would say, um, uh, uh, around the, the baseload um, issues. So that's kind of one piece. Um, also, when we're looking at uh, national uh, numbers um, and kind of looking at the decline of these things, there, there are kind of particular places where uh, it does continue to kind of make sense uh, to run coal, where you don't have the gas pipelines in quite the same kind of way, or there are other demands uh, on gas. Uh, and so coal is then more competitive. I, th I think there's also this kind of wild card out there as well, which is how quickly are we going to be adopting uh, electric uh, vehicles and other forms of um, beneficial uh, electrification? So I think there is some reticence in some areas to completely shutter the coal fire power plants um, because of the increasing demands from EVs um, and again, other forms of beneficial electrification. Um, where that's really interesting because I think right now the sense is that basically EVs are more efficient or EVs are less carbon intensive than gas powered cars just about everywhere in the country. But the idea that people are, uh, that in a way that wouldn't necessarily show up in a statistical study, <laughs> but is, uh, that utilities kind of at the firm level are keeping capacity around because they're scared of future increases in electricity demand. Do you, do you have a sense of where that's happening? That's really interesting. You know, um, I work a lot in Michigan. Um, I work a lot uh, in issues um, related to DTE uh, electric, which is in and around kind of the Detroit area. Uh, and as part of various presentations that they've given to stakeholders, um, they've been doing modeling related to these issues. And kind of one of the big questions, uh, again, is kind of what's gonna happen with EV adoption um, rates. Uh, and so to that extent, um, they do have a plan to be phasing uh, out coal. Um, I, you know, and different utilities are either shuttering coal plants or they're changing them to right using natural gas. But I think that is also a, a potential uh, driver too. Is just you know they're driven by uh, I think the desire to make sure that the lights are on you know 24 by 365. Um, yeah, they they want to maintain that kind of option value. Um, that's that's really interesting. That makes sense. So your story or your chapter rather walks through a whole bunch of policies that could affect, uh, you know, the, the future demand for coal and the future of the coal industry and, and ways that the Biden administration um, kind of could integrate some climate policy <laughs> and some thinking about the climate into how it it regulates the coal industry in the many, many ways that it regulates the coal industry. I think probably for the next few minutes, we're just going to walk through many of those policies. But before we go into them, what's the overall frame that people should bring to like thinking about what Biden could do about coal? And like, how does the federal government it seems like there are many, many, many levers that aren't the famous ones, you know, the Clean Air Act, et cetera, that the federal government has over the coal industry. Is that is that true? How many of it? How many of those are, are even using right now? So, yes, I, I think, you know, a major driver uh, is going to be whatever the uh, Biden administration comes up with uh, under the Clean Air act uh, in terms of how it regulates uh, existing coal-fired power plants. Um, and that's really going to be a, a question of, um, I think, two things, kind of you know, accelerating 
retirements, as well as ending up at a lower level uh, of, of plants ultimately, which you know could be zero, but I guess that all kind of remains uh, to be seen. Um, and then there are also uh, initiatives um, uh, obviously, my colleague Michael Greenstone has uh, published a lot uh, about the social cost of carbon, um, which if the government adopts a uniform price uh, for um, uh, what the social damages uh, are from carbon emissions, that will then ripple through uh, so many different laws and um, regulations and, and have a big impact uh, as well. I, I think people talk more about those particular aspects of things. So. One of the things I'm trying to focus on in this piece is um, we need to address uh, the fact that we have uh, been mining coal um, and what are we going to do at the particular sites, uh, the land contamination, the water contamination, even air contamination um, that happens um, from those coal mines. And then on the combustion side, uh, we also have coal ash ponds um, at uh, existing uh facilities um, that need to get managed and cleaned up as well. So I think those are, uh, and then there's some financial pieces uh, in terms of who actually pays for that. So those I think are some of the contributions of of the piece. Um, Yeah, let's, let's, let's dig in. So what is the, and I totally agree with you, by the way, that basically when we talk about these, this from a regulatory perspective, it's all clean air act and sometimes social costs of carbon. Um, And then one eye-opening thing about your chapter is how many other potential ways in there are for policy. Um, and it's not to downplay, obviously, the Clean Air Act or Social Cause of Carbon. Those are extremely important levers. That's why they get so much tension. But uh, there's just a lot of ways in, it seemed like. Uh, yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, one, one of the ways that I talk about in the chapter is that 40% of the coal um, that is mined in the United States comes from federal lands. Huh. Those are lands owned by the American people, right? Uh, collectively, and that the government uh, controls. And the government uh, could essentially stop all new coal leasing. Now, admittedly, the, the, they have already approved a, a number of existing mines. Um, Revoking those existing permits um, would be uh, more dramatic, uh, more controversial, would arguably have costs associated um, with them because of the the permits have been granted, operations are happening um, there. But in terms of you know reducing the supply of coal, you know forty percent of it is coming from federal lands. The uh, Biden administration could basically adopt a policy. Um, yeah, I'll say tomorrow. It's it's more a little bit more complicated <laughs> than that uh, of not doing any new coal leasing, right? And, and so, and so, and so over so over so over roughly a ten or twenty year period, as these mines run out, that would reduce the supply of coal. That would increase um, uh, the cost of coal, which would put additional pressure on the existing coal fired power plants, right? Make them even less economical than they are right now. So that's that's kind of an additional lever. No, that and that's great. That's actually the first one I was going to ask about. Is is like what what would a policy like that? Um, <laughs> could the Biden administration just say no more coal leasing? It's over. Uh, would that meet the arbitrary and capricious standard? Like, what kind of levers would the Biden administration talk about if it wanted to effectively end, you know, 
leasing of of federal lands for coal mining. Yeah. So uh, I think the way that it would be done um, would be um, through a rulemaking. Um, that would be a, a, the strongest way uh, of doing it, and basically reassessing the federal coal leasing uh, program. Um, there, uh, you know, it's 1979 um, was the last time that there was a programmatic environmental impact statement done, and then 1985 was the last time that uh, there was a supplementary environmental impact statement done under the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, looking at the coal program. So there, there was an effort uh, at the end of the Obama administration um, to look at this. Um, there was an order from um, then Secretary Jewell um, in terms of putting a, a temporary a moratorium uh, on leasing and looking at um, essentially redoing the environmental uh, impact statement. Uh, one of Secretary Zinke's first acts um, after being directed, uh, essentially, by <laughs> President Trump's executive order um, was to lift uh, lift all of that effort. Um, but that's now um, being litigated uh, again um, right now uh, in courts uh, in Montana. And so I think, again, kind of to answer your question, you know, I, I think that uh, updating the environmental impact study uh, under NEPA, and then moving forward with a rule um, that, that would basically say the uh, costs of this uh, outweigh outweigh the benefits. Yeah. I, I think I think at the at the very least there is a very strong case for increasing the um, the costs imposed um, on the coal that's kind of taken off of federal land. So even if there wasn't a ban or a moratorium uh, on the leasing itself, um, there's been a good argument uh, advanced uh, that uh, even without the social cost of carbon, um, that the price of coal being mined on federal lands uh, is not fully cost competitive, doesn't take, take into account a number of um, pollution harms. Uh, and then especially when you start adding in things like the social cost of carbon uh, as well. Can they basically can they can they do that? I mean, can they add like a de facto carbon price to the to the tons of coal being removed from the leases? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this uh, would all be uh, litigated, but uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I believe that they can do that. Cool, interesting. Um, when you talk about uh, moving to from coal mines that don't exist yet to coal mines that exist right now, um, what are some of the levers that the government has? to uh, over kind of the mines as they exist today in, in however they're being mined. One thing you mentioned, for instance, is um, using the EPA's authority over water pollution to shape uh, or rather to restrict mountaintop removal mi mining in some form. What would that look like? At the end of the Obama uh, administration, um, there was the promulgation of what was called by EPA of the stream protection rule, which was designed to protect streams um, from the impacts of uh, mountaintop removal mining. Um, speaking very simply, mountaintop removal mining is basically um, blowing off um, the, the tops uh, of mountains, um, pushing 
um, the rock uh, down into streams in order to, into valleys um, in order to be able to access the coal uh, underneath. Um, those valleys often have streams. And so um, aquatic life uh, in those streams uh, is impacted um, directly by the filling um, that's yeah. taking place. Um, uh, this rock uh, often contains um, chemicals, uh, minerals, right, uh, that end up contaminating the water uh, downstream uh, as well. Um, you know, one of the challenges is that the Obama administration kind of promulgated this rule for the very end um, uh, uh, of its time in office at the end of 2016. And then when, a, um, when Congress came in, the new Congress came in in 2017, they used something called the Congressional Review Act to basically overturn the stream protection rule. Um, and there's a legally kind of complicated aspect to this, which is when Congress uses the Congressional Review Act to overturn a rule, the agency is not allowed to promulgate a substantially similar rule. And uh -huh. so, you know, EPA does need to look at um, how it can protect these streams. Um, and I think look back at a number of the things kind of similar to uh, the stream uh, protection rule, but it is kind of facing this question of how does it do it in a way which, it, you know, um, you know, avoids that potential legal risk. Obviously, Congress uh, uh, taking action uh, would be the best best way. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of other priorities in Congress uh, these days. How much do you... Has something like that ever been tried before where there's a uh, Congressional Review Act on a rule and then an agency tries to make a similar-ish rule and maybe goes through a different channel or a different like part of the statute? Uh, no. <laughs> no, which is why it's very interesting. You know, uh, from, from my uh, uh, part of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is, is, is litigate uh, environmental and energy cases. And so it's, it's kind of very interesting um, from, from that perspective. Um, but it, you know, it will entail um, legal risk um, for uh, US EPA, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the Department of Justice. So I don't think in that sense, we don't. I don't. We don't really have a lot. We don't have any uh, kind of examples to point to, to to understand how how to craft this. Um, what other levers are there for existing mines that the federal government could use that wouldn't relate to the the stream rule? Yeah. So you know, one thing is um, uh, actually making sure that these mines are putting aside, uh, I'll say, enough money um, to cover the costs uh, of reclamation. Uh, and I, I, this is a little bit more indirect, but it, 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 we need to be sure that there is sufficient financial assurance that these areas that are mined um, are going to be uh, reclaimed, right? Which means that the water is addressed, um, the, the terrain um, is restored uh, as much as possible. That involves costs, and mining companies over time have been able to avoid those costs, uh, not put aside enough money, basically to engage in a practice of self-bonding. And, and essentially what that has done is that has lowered the price of coal. Yeah. And, and so by making sure that they incorporate 
as they're required to by law, uh, the, the costs uh, of environmental reclamation, environmental remediation, um, that will, uh, again, increase uh, the price of coal, make some, some mines less competitive, um, and will uh, put you know, economic pressure on them, and more of them may shudder uh, as a result. Um, what is, you mentioned this practice called self-bonding. What is that? So under the 1977 Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act, um, which is typically referred to as SMACRA, uh, companies um, that mine uh, have to they have an obligation after they're done with the mining to ensure that the land um, is restored to the approximate original contour um, and that there is kind of no long-term you know, water pollution um, or no hydrological um, damage kind of resulting from their operations. The law requires companies to provide some form of financial assurance yeah. when the, uh, they get this permit that they're going to have the resources to handle this. One way that they've been able to do that is through a practice of self-bonding which basically means that a company says, okay, we're big enough as a company, we've got enough mines or we're a conglomerate or whatever the case might be, that even if we shut down one mine, we've got sufficient financial resources as a company that we can cover the cost of that. It would be essentially saying, um, uh, it would be as if Hertz or Avis, uh, as rental car companies said, look, we have enough rental cars and we're a big enough company financially that if one automobile is in an accident, we've got all these other financial resources to handle it. We don't have to insure every single automobile um, for the damage that it might uh, uh, you know, inflict uh, upon others. Problem is, if you're in a world in which there are fewer mines, um, they're under greater financial stress. Uh, and as we see from a lot of these companies that have been going into bankruptcy, getting reorganized or going out of business and then selling their mines, right? Capital is a huge problem uh, in this industry. So, you know, the, the, and a number of financial institutions are refusing to lend to this industry, invest in this, in, in this industry. They just don't have the financial resources to be able to self-bond um, anymore. So one of my recommendations is to eliminate um, uh, self-bonding uh, as uh, an option. There's an additional problem, um, which I talk a bit about in the paper as well, but I want to uh, elaborate on here too. So the companies can go out and get um, financial assurance from essentially uh, uh, surety, they're called surety uh, companies that basically kind of write, you know, guarantees that says, okay, if the, if the you know, uh, mining company is not able to clean up the site, then we insurance company, surety company will cover the costs uh, of that. As I was mentioning a couple of minutes ago, right, um, there are a number of problems you know, fewer and fewer companies are writing, insurance companies, surety companies kind of writing these kinds of policies. So the risks are getting concentrated. Yeah. The industry is poorly capitalized. So it might be fine in a world in which one mine has a problem and the company can kind of collect enough money from the 99 other mines. 
But when you're in a world uh, that we're in now, the surety companies themselves are having problems. Um, we see in the Peabody bankruptcy, um, one of the one of the surety companies kind of inserting itself into the Peabody bankruptcy, talking about how it wasn't it wanted more collateral um, from Peabody in West Virginia. Um, one of the main surety companies there has said that they didn't have enough money um, to cover um, the full costs, uh, might not have the money to cover the full costs uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars range um, for one of the major coal bankruptcies there. So what we need to do is move away from self-bonding and from the surety companies for the reasons that I've talked about to the companies actually putting up the money kind of themselves. That's, that's really interesting. Let's say a, a mining company has kind of outstanding um, money that it owes for the associated environmental, environmental costs of a mine, and then it goes bankrupt. Um, one thing you write in the chapter is that the way the bankruptcy code is structured is that it's quite easy for those costs to kind of get dumped. Um, what's the situation there and, and how could we fix it? And one of the things which I, uh, I talk about uh, in the paper is prioritizing the funds in the bankruptcy estate to go to cleaning up um, these environmental liabilities. So <laughs> part of bankruptcy uh, is, is essentially a pecking order of who gets paid out of the bankruptcy estate. Um, and uh, to simplify vastly, uh, you know, taxes get paid uh, uh, before what are called secured creditors. Um, and these environmental liabilities um, are in the unsecured um, category. So really at the bottom of the pecking order. Um, and I think we should think about, given that these cleanup costs are ultimately falling on governments, I guess I would argue that we should kind of think about them maybe more like these tax liabilities. Um, huh. They should be actually treated as, you know, um, you know, I'll call them costs imposed upon society um, uh, that the governments are going to pay, taxpayers are going to pay. So it's it's a it's, it's kind of like an uncollected tax. I mean, I guess you could argue. Um, yeah. And and that therefore they should come kind of higher in the pecking order um, than they are uh, presently. And how that, that would how that could would, we do that? that? Would require that would really require a change to the bankruptcy code. Okay. Um, so that would be something where the administration would need to work with Congress uh, on that. Another place that you talk about that's. Uh, another place that you talk about where Congress might need to do something is this law called the Abandoned Mine Land Fund, uh, or uh, this fund called the Abandoned Mine Land Fund. How does that work, and what's its current status? Yeah, so what we were talking about before was essentially mines that um, are currently in operation or that have just kind of recently been shuttered. The Abandoned Mine Land Fund um, basically addresses uh, mines set up at the time of the uh, Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. So 1977 mines um, and before um, that would have closed uh, before. Um, the uh, issue is that we still have uh, hundreds uh, of those mines um, throughout the country. 
the estimate um, that uh, has been put together, uh, one estimate, kind of the official estimate, uh, has the cost in the range of 11 to 12 billion dollars um, wow. to clean up um, those uh, mines. Uh, there are other estimates out there as well. Um, uh, for example, um, the person who uh, in the Obama administration was responsible um, for the Office of Surface Mining and Reclamation uh, has pointed out that many of those estimates do not uh, or have not been adjusted for inflation, um, that they don't include some design um, costs uh, as well. And so there are estimates that 11 to 12 billion is actually about half of what the cost might actually be, kind of in the 20 to 25 billion dollar range, particularly as it takes time to address these issues. Problem with the fund is that it's not big enough <laughs> to uh, deal with these problems. Uh, it, it's basically um, only collecting about 125 million dollars plus or minus uh, uh, each year um, mm -hmm. that it then kind of uh, puts out um, for these cleanups um, and. What Congress could do, uh, either as part of the normal budget process uh, or through the various infrastructure and jobs bills, um, would be to put a lot more money uh, into cleaning up these mines a lot more quickly. In, in fact, one of President Biden's proposals um, was for $16 billion um, for addressing abandoned mines, not, not just coal, but also uranium mines, um, uh, and also uh, plugging oil and gas wells um, as well. Um, but we really need kind of a massive uh, uh, investment um, uh, in, in this um, in order to address address these problems. And is that... Is that funded by Congress just as part of it can fund it or is it, are there fees that increase the current costs of mines or is it just Congress puts up money, it goes into the fund? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a great uh, uh, question. I mean, right now, you know, roughly um, the mining, the current the companies that are currently mining um, are paying in at roughly the same rate that the money is going out to reclaim um, the mines. The fund has about a total of $2 billion um, um, right now. Um, but we're basically, you know, it's $2 billion against the total of 12 to $20 billion. Yeah. Um, and uh, additional you know, fees are coming in only at a rate of about, you know, $125, $150 million a year. Um, this is going to come under further pressure as coal, it's, you know, coal mine, thermal coal mining comes under pressure uh, as well. Yeah. Particularly interesting because at this time, because in September, that fee that's being collected for the fund uh, expires. Oh, and so okay. there's some proposals out there. Uh, Senator Manchin actually has two different proposals out there. One which was kind of a, a straight up um, reauthorization. Um, and uh, that was an earlier one from this spring. Uh, a more recent one actually has reauthorization at about 80% uh, of the current um, fee level. And then um, Senator Barrasso uh, um, from Wyoming, who's very influential in this, uh, thinks that those fees should kind of be cut further. So Congress is really under time pressure right now um, to uh, reauthorize uh, those fees. So we've been talking a lot about um, ways to increase the cost of coal, you know, one downside or or to just 
increase the regulatory burdens, let's say, on coal so that it internalizes some of its huge societal costs into its prices. Um, one of the downsides of that <laughs> is that presumably it isn't great for coal miners who are facing an industry in decline in the first place. So what are ways across any of these policies or just generally that Congress or the administration could lessen the blow to coal miners? I mean, is there work that kind of would flow out of some of these ideas that then could just be assigned to the same people who were working the mines in the first place? Uh, yes. I mean, if you kind of, if one looks at a map of where the abandoned mines are um, as compared to the current mines, um, yes, there are opportunities um, where people kind of in the miners in the same geographic uh, regions or people who've been laid off from mines um, mm -hmm. could be put to work um, in, in terms of um, you know, addressing these issues with the uh, abandoned uh, mines. So uh, it, it is not, it does not mean like um, uh, leaving one's job uh, in Appalachia, getting retrained and then having to move to, I'll say, Kansas or Iowa to be a wind farm technician, right? Because that has, actually is like, I think legitimately, you know, people are invested in these communities. If the compensation isn't exactly the same, but if, you know, you can pay kind of prevailing federal wage, right, um, for these positions, um, things like that um, uh, would help with the transition uh, as well. Um, one other interesting thing I will say as well, um, in terms of workers at coal fire power plants, it, it, that retreat is being also maybe managed a little bit more or a little bit yeah. differently from coal mining. Right? Coal mining has a bit of this boom bust uh, element um, to it, right? Um, where kind of mines open and close and yeah, I mean, yeah, they can throttle their workforces a little bit, but um, with the util public utilities and the kind of trajectories that they have um, for their coal-fired power plants, um, they are being, um, generally mm -hmm. speaking, kind of more thoughtful about how they're helping their workers transition into other positions, whether at ex other coal-fired power plants that they operate, working on training them um, into a kind of renewable energy fields or things like that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a different, you know, it actually shows the importance of industry structure um, uh, uh, in terms of kind of helping to manage some of this. That's really, really interesting. I think the Biden administration is also quite thoughtful about the environmental justice issues uh, as well um, mm -hmm. and um, how that affects um, various uh, communities. And so I, I do think that the Biden administration definitely, you know, is, is, is thinking about um, coal country, coal communities, coal miners as it's trying to move forward on these issues. Thanks. Well, thank you for making time and joining us. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff in the future as, as it starts to become not just proposals, but actual policy. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts. To read more about the policy recommendations in EPIC's roadmap, visit epic.uchicago.edu. That's epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Rob Meyer.